Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, this is Mythbusting uh, at Web Yeshiva with me, Uri Cohen, and uh, today's session is number 10 out of 13 sessions. Um, the, uh, we're going to follow the same, same pattern that we've been doing uh, the last, uh, the last uh, basically the whole time until, uh, until now. Let's start with, uh, with the quote. Remember last time, uh, we uh, we started with a quote from uh, a major Hasidic Rebbe uh, who discounted uh, stories told by uh, by Hasidim, and here we have the equivalent of a major uh, what they call now not Misnagdim but Litvish, uh, technically Lithuanian, but the yeshiva world, a rabbi making um, uh, not just a rabbi, the top rabbi making a similar statement. Uh, this is a quote from Reb Chaim Kanievsky, who uh, these days is considered the uh, the top rabbi in the uh, certainly of the Israeli Haredi world, and he's going to refer to his father, Rav Yaakov Yisrael uh, Kanievsky, who died in I think it was 1985, um, known as the Stapler, and his I think it was brother-in-law, the Chazonish, who was the most important Haredi rabbi of the 20th century, uh, all saying similar things. Here we go. Amr Abenu, the student who's writing this, says, our teacher, namely Rav Chaim Kanievsky, said, Kama Pamim, he said a bunch of times, Do not rely on rumors, technically what people hear, that, that people say in the name of the Chazanish, or in the name of Rabbi Kanievsky's father, I put in brackets the stipler, or in the name of, of Rav Chaim Kanievsky himself, don't listen to, to any of this. In general, when you say, I heard that Rabbi Kanievsky said, I heard that the Chazanish said, in general, either these statements are outright lies, or they're exactly the opposite of what the rabbi actually said. You can't rely on somebody just telling you what they heard in the name of the rabbi. I mean, in general, that's what we do. That's, that's how you get opinions out. But he's saying... You can only rely on what the rabbi wrote, not on what you heard uh, in the name of the rabbi. And then he went on to say, the Chazanish, the Chazanish himself, Amarlo, said to him, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, The only thing you should believe that you hear in my name is what you heard personally from me at the table. You can believe that I said it to you if you heard it from me. But what you hear outside of the door, outside of the room, you didn't hear it yourself, don't believe it. Which is, that's a very uh, sweeping statement of, of skepticism, but uh, it's a lot more meaningful coming from the major Haredi rabbis who presumably were uh, sent, they, they themselves they were uh, victims of this sort of thing. Somebody makes something up and they say it in the name of the, of the great rabbi and how do you know whether the great rabbi said it or, or not? And the answer is if you heard it from him personally, you can rely on it. And if you didn't, don't rely on it. Having said that, let's start with an urban legend. Um, don't worry that we're not doing a, a, an article from Rabbi uh, Arzavitovsky. We'll, we'll get to one of his uh, pieces later in this, in this session. Here's an urban legend that we say Migdol in Berkat Mazon, the grace after meals, on Shabbat because of a misunderstanding. 
sounds like that statement itself is uh, is the skeptical statement. But no, there's a theory, which we'll see shortly, to explain why is it that in Berkhan Mazon, during the week, we say, Magdil Yeshuot Malko, and on Shabbat and, and uh, Chagim, we say, uh, Migdol Yeshuot Malko. So this is uh, an article, or parts of an article that appear in the Jewish Bible Quarterly, which used to be known as uh, Dora Wador. That's where people who are not professional Bible scholars can, can write articles. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Raymond Apple, uh, he is retired now. Um, he made Aliyah in 2006, but uh, between 1972 and 2005, he was the senior rabbi of the Great Synagogue of Sydney. Uh, so he's one of he's one of the big names of uh, Australian rabbis of the uh, uh, of the last uh, the last generation. He wrote a bunch of articles. Uh, for a while, he had a, a column in a Torah Tidbits published by the uh, OU Israel Center, and this article is about this thing, the Magdal and Migdal. So I'm not going to go through the, the details, just just uh, just uh, bits and pieces of it. Basically, there are two psukim. One of them is found in Shmuel Bet, and that's from the Haftorah that, uh, from the seventh day of, of Pesach. And the other is in Tehillim, Tehillim Yudchet. Uh, and there are, basically, it's, it's uh, two texts, both in Tanakh, and there are several differences between the two versions. The one that we're focusing on is that one of them says that Magdil Yeshuot Malko, God magnifies uh, victory for his king. And the other version is Migdol, uh, God is a tower of victory for his kings. Okay, so they're both saying saying something positive about uh, about God. Um, so the question is, why why would you have one version and some of the time and one version uh, the rest of the time? So. Just uh, very briefly, I thought it was interesting that uh, before we get to that, uh, uh, ex- before we, t- we tackle that question, that uh, Rav Hirsch uh, suggests that um, that originally um, it was a uh, part of David's life in Shmuel Bet, and then God, re- and then David Hamelch rewrote it uh, to be for everybody. Uh, so he made some changes um, from a God is or was my David's tower of support. He changed it to a prayer of hope that God in the future should support the uh, Davidic dynasty, namely uh, future kings and uh, and eventually uh, Mashiach. In any case, uh, getting back to our, our central point, we we say Magdil uh, on weekdays and Migdol uh, on Shabbat and Chagim. So Rabbi Baruch HaLevi Epstein, whom we mentioned uh, last week, uh, yeah, last week he was one who uh, uh, most famously wrote the uh, the, the uh, commentary on the Chumash called the Torah Tamima. I know my, my father's a big big fan of that. Uh, he wrote some other books as well. Um, from his autobiography, several volumes in Hebrew called Makor Baruch. One, the translation adaptation of one section of it was called My Uncle the Nitziv, and that's what we talked about last week. How the Lakewood Cheder first uh, published it, and then. Uh, tried to uh, recall it. Anyway, Rabbi uh, Epstein has a commentary uh, called Baruch Shamar. Very clever. His name was Baruch. So Baruch Shamar, Baruch, Baruch Speaks. And there's, I think there are three volumes, if I remember correctly, called Baruch Shamar. One's on, on the Siddur, one's on Perki Avod, and one's on the Haggadah, which are th- the three like most commented, most read books in uh, uh, Jewish tradition, and he 
Rabbi Epstein came up with a theory. Here's his theory. Um, although people tended to use Magdil, the version from Tehillim, prayer books had a marginal note, Bet Shin Bet Migdol. Bet Shin Bet in Shmuel Bet, this, the version is Migdol. That's it, meaning somebody added. We say Magdil, but just P.S., you should know that there's another version. That's it, nothing to do with Shabbat. And Rabbi Epstein suggests this was misread owing to the use of the abbreviations. People misread it as Bishabbat Migdol, meaning on Shabbat and uh, Chagim. When we say uh, Berkat Amazon, we should switch to Migdol. Um, And Rabbi Epstein assumes that the custom uh, may have emerged with the invention of printing. Hebrew printing, we know, began in the second half of of the uh, 15th century. A printer misinterpreted the marginal reference from Bishmuel Bet to Bishabbat and wrote it out uh, on Shabbat, you should say uh, Migdal. And this would have seemed to su- find support in the fact that the terms Shmuel Alf and Shmuel Bet, these terms don't go back all the way to the time of Tanakh. These terms were first used in the Bomberg Bible of 1516. So, in which case, so it makes sense for somebody to, to look at. Shin Bet, and not say, oh, obviously Shmuel Bet, if this is a new term. Oh, Shin Bet is an abbreviation for Shabbat. Now, why would I call this an urban legend? After all, we don't know where, uh, where the uh, custom came from. Uh, like, in general, we don't know where customs uh, come from. Uh, Magdil and Migdol. So how do you, maybe Rabbi Epstein is right. No, sorry, Rabbi Epstein is definitely wrong. How do you know? Because the Magdil-Migdol dichotomy antedated, predated printing. So you can't blame the printers for it. How do we know? Because Rav David uh, Avudraham, or Avudarham, uh, a rabbi who lived in the 14th century, uh, more 100 years before, or more before the age of printing, he wrote basically a commentary on the Siddur, which is still in print, uh, including the Berkat Zone, and he says that, I have a kibalti me rebel tie. I... Uh, I, I received from uh, from my teachers that you should say Migdol on Shabbat. So nice theory, but uh, the uh, the facts uh, one little fact uh, shoots down this uh, uh, this theory. Uh, before we move on, I should point out that Rabbi Apple goes on to suggest we don't again we don't know why, but there's got to be some reason uh, why uh, one version we say on. Uh, on weekday and one on Shabbat. So he suggests it could be that um, that there's a theory that Ketuvim, or at least Tehillim in, in Ketuvim, predates Nevi'im. And therefore, if you have two different versions, you should have the Ketuvim one first, or more frequently. Where do you see this? On Musaf of, of uh, Rosh Hashanah, where in each of the three sections, Ma'achiyot, Zichronon, and Shofrot, we have uh, ten Pesukim arranged in the order of you would think it would be Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, but in fact it's Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. And then we end with one Pasuk of, of Torah. In which case, it could be that, for whatever reason people are, wanted to say both versions, the more frequent version, the one that we, there are six days of the week and only one day, one day of Shabbat, so the more frequent one is the one of Ketuvim, namely Tehillim. And then on Shabbat we say the, uh, the alternate version. Um, but... Uh, he then goes on to say, why, why would he even say this? What does this have to do with Birkat Amazon at all? Uh, and he, Rabbi Apple suggests that um, 
based on a, a midrash that it's a reference to uh, uh, Mashiach, uh, a prayer about about Mashiach. And in general, I I did not I didn't I hadn't I had not realized this. There's a practice of ending major liturgical units like the Amidah, the Kaddish, Aweinu, Haggadah. Those are all major. We end them with a reference to Geula, a reference to uh, to Mashiach. You can go through on your own and see how each of these has a reference at the end to uh, to the future redemption. So, in which case, so on the last on the last page of Berkat Mazon, uh, there's a reference to uh, uh, to Mashiach. The Medrash actually says this. It's not talking about Berkat Mazon. It just says Medrash on this pasuk in Tehillim that Migdol. Um, uh, uh, Yeshua Malko is a reference to Mashiach. The Mashiach will be like a uh, like a tower for them. So on Shabbat, which is associated with Me'en Olam Haba, that could be associated with Geula. So therefore, on Shabbat, the uh, uh, instead of saying the usual version, we say the version that refers to Mashiach. Maybe we don't know. Um, it, maybe it's not as uh, as um, uh, funky, it's not as interesting as the theory of Rabbi Epstein, but sorry, the theory of Rabbi Epstein does not does not fit with the uh, with the facts. Moving right along, here's an unlikely story. The Shagat Aryeh was crushed to death by a bookcase. Now, why, like, why, why would anybody even tell a story like that? So, this is uh, elaborated on in an article in the Jewish Review of Books by Rabbi Dr. Zev Eleph. Since uh, he's not that well known, I just want to spend a minute uh, talking about about who he is and recommending his stuff. Uh, you can find his a bunch of his articles on his uh, academia webpage. Um, Zev Elf is a, a vice provo- provost uh, of Tura College, uh, Illinois. He's the chief academic officer of Hebrew Theological College, also known as the Skokie Yeshiva. Uh, professor of Jewish history for uh, Tura Graduate School. Um, has an MA in history and education from Teachers College of, of Columbia, a doctorate in American Jewish history at Brandeis, ordination from OIU. And for our purposes, Rabbi Dr. Zev Elf is the most prolific historian of American modern orthodoxy. He has a bunch of articles, a bunch of books. His books include a history of NCSY, the, the youth movement run, run by the OU, and uh, a thick book, called Modern Orthodox Judaism, A Documentary History, in which he presents a lot of the text of a lot of the uh, uh, documents involved in that are important for the history of uh, modern orthodoxy in America. Anybody who's studying modern orthodoxy, uh, American modern orthodoxy, like you'll see his name come up all the time. So this article is not about American modern orthodoxy, uh, but it is about uh, history of, uh, of orthodoxy and different versions of orthodoxy. So just going to go through parts of this article. This is not the entire article, but it's, uh, it's most of it. The great 18th century scholar, Talmud Chacham, Arya Leib Ginsburg, who, as we'll see, people refer to him as Shagat Arya because that's the name of the, uh, uh, of the book of Shevod Shuvot uh, that he wrote. But the important background for the, uh, the myth about his death is to know that he, just summarizing here, he didn't pose punches. He said he said all sorts of harsh and nasty things about Rishonim and Achronim, whom he disagreed with. Now, that would not be the first time or the last time that a rabbi um, arguing with another rabbi uses hard private is famous for, for doing that about the Rambam and, and about the, um, uh, the riff. But 
that's going to be the background to the story. Uh, so his, his book is called Shagat Arye, the, the Roar of the Lion. And Ginsburg's harshness eventually killed him, or at least so the story goes. Here's the story. In 1901, Aaron Marcus published a book called Der Hasidismus, a, a history of uh, Hasidut. The author was a Hasid, follower of the Radomska Rebbe. So 1901, uh, granted, it's not 1801 when the uh, uh, bitterness, when the controversy between Hasidim and Misnagdim was, uh, uh, was at its height, but still, point is, this is somebody who's coming from the perspective of Hasidut. He tells a lot of stories about the Baal Shem Tov, and he tells the following story uh, about the death of this rabbi, Rabbi Ginsburg, who was a misnagate, meaning not a chassid. He died in, in Metz at the age of 97 as a result of an accident that took place when a bookcase fell down on top of him. He remained buried for half an hour until his relatives found him. When he was unburied, um, excavated is probably a better translation, he said in Hebrew, all the authors attacked him for ignoring their writings and arguing with their positions, and for half an hour he appeased them all Except for one, the bad-tempered Levush. Levush was a contemporary in Poland of, of the Ramah, who did not forgive him for his uh, criticisms. And because of this, because the Levush in the bookcase, uh, the, the author, the Levush, represented by his book in the bookcase, so Rabbi Ginsburg knew that he would soon die because of all, all the authors he criticized, whose books were crushing him, this author did not forgive him. The end. Not a very inspirational story, but what's the point? Rabbi Elf explains. According to Marcus, the one who told the story, Rabbi Ginsburg's critical battles took over his entire world, as symbolized by the bookcase, and the criticized were avenged. Thus, Marcus contrasted this paragon of the intellectual virtues of anti-Hasidic Judaism with the pure saintliness of the Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidut, whose stories are in the same book by Marcus. Now, how do you know the story is not true? Isn't it possible that, uh, that somebody could be crushed to death by a bookcase? It's possible, but not in this case. Ginsburg was, first of all, he was 90, not 97, when he died. Moreover, no one seems to have known of any such fatal trauma at the time. The notice of his death in the leading journal of the Enlightenment makes no mention of the incident, nor does the bookcase appear in the written eulogies of three major rabbis who gave eulogies at the time, even a hundred years later. The legend does not seem to have been in circulation. There's a biography of Ginsburg, 1899, drawing on dozens of published books, archives, fantastic tales, including negative, and he doesn't mention the bookcase. So, well, how do we relate to the story? The way we relate to the story is the way that um, the major scholar of Kabbalah, Gershom Sholom, related to this book by, uh, by R. Marcus. Marcus's accounts are wonderful inventions of the author. His stinging criticisms of scholars are built upon nothingness. In other words, he made up stories, or maybe he uh, heard a story and presented it as fact, but nobody else uh, heard the story. Basically, it's, it's against the, uh, the fact. There are other stories, he goes on to say, later stories of uh, some... Uh, apparently, in fact, uh, eccentric uh, composer Charles Valentin Alcon um, in 1888, um, who, may, who was found dead, possibly crushed by a coat rack, meaning this is the kind of story that people like to tell because it's so, so unusual, it's so, it's so grotesque. That story was debunked as well. 
there's another story in uh, Howard's End, uh, which is probably not inspired by the death of the Shagat Aryeh. E.M. Forster was not coming from a background of uh, rabbinic legends. Agnon, the, um, the Orthodox author who uh, uh, won the Nobel Prize for, uh, for literature, um, Israeli, well, from, uh, from Poland, made Aliyah to, uh, uh, no, not Poland, Lithuania, uh, made Aliyah to, uh, to Israel. He retells this story. He tells it a little bit differently. And this is the way he quotes it from the historian uh, Yaakov Natali Hertz Simchoni. It wasn't the Lavush. It wasn't Rabbi Yaffe who wrote the Lavush, but rather it was the Shach. Okay? Slightly different, and maybe this is even a better version of the story for storytelling purposes. Because, so the the Shagat Arya was in vehement, dis- this, the Agnon version. The Shagat Arya was in vehement disagreement with the Shach, but be- and he put, he put the book of the Shach on top of the bookcase, above all the other books, where he couldn't reach it. And once happened, he recalled something that he thought would refute a statement in the Shach, so he climbed on a ladder to take it, but the ladder fell, uh, tumbled, and he fell. Meaning not that he was crushed by the books, but that he fell in and had a fatal accident, which is related to the fact that he was trying to criticize uh, one of the books. So this second version of the story has that in common with the first version. And Rabbi uh, Ginsburg, the Shagat Ari said, Rabbi Shabtai, author of the Shach, what a bad temper you have. Uh, but then he ended up uh, dying uh, as a result of this fall. Perhaps this version is a little gentler. Um, and then Rabbi Elf goes on to say, I heard the story from Rabbi Herschel Schachter of Wayu, who heard it from his father. Uh, although the story in the Agnon version has been decoupled, has been separated from uh, Marcus's Hasidic polemic, it still warns those who would presume to criticize the intellectual abilities or interpretive authority of the saintly rabbis of yesteryear. And in general, like every any well-furnished rabbinic library has the Shagat Aryeh, but his willingness to unabashedly criticize early authorities has, by and large, has not been followed by subsequent generations of rabbinic scholars. Um, on the contrary, he's remembered, whether or not, whether it happens to him or not, he's remembered for being a harsh critic who died at the hands or bindings of those he criticized. So this is an example of a story where uh, it doesn't fit the facts, but I understand why somebody would tell it as a defender of Chassidut make telling an anti-Misnagid story, and I understand why Misnagdim, yeshiva people, would continue telling the story, nothing to do with Hasidut, but just to say, you can learn Torah, and you can even disagree with the people you, uh, um, with, with whoever you're arguing with, you could disagree, but don't, um, don't, don't let, it get, let it get out of hand, uh, don't be too harsh, because look what happened to the rabbi who was too harsh a critic. So it's a cautionary tale. It's not true. It's not historically true. Uh, but I like the way that, uh, that Rabbi Elif, uh presents this as like trying to understand why the story would have been told originally and why the story would have been continued uh, to be told. Anyway, that's, uh, that's our unlikely story. And now we're moving on to three things. Well, two which are, real, two which are three about Hanukkah. We now come up to the part of our class, uh, which I call Street Torah, namely some an opinion which it is correct, but people think it's the only opinion. And that's not correct. There are other opinions. So before you go around correcting people on this, just uh, recognize that, that there's more than one. 
A Hanukkah menorah is disqualified if the candles are at different heights. So my personal connection with this, uh, with this statement um, is I once had a conversation with my grandparents, uh, my mother's parents, um, in which uh, my grandmother said that they had been to uh, a Judaic art fair and they saw a lot of uh, beautiful items, and, and and my grandmother was thinking about uh, buying this uh, uh, beautiful uh, artistic menorah for Hanukkah, but she decided not to because it had candles uh, at different heights. And she said, the shul- or maybe it was my grandfather. One of them said, the Shulchan Aruch says you can't. You're not allowed to do that. So. I was old enough at this point that I already knew that that was not the only opinion, but uh, maybe I didn't know yet. But I thought there was something a little weird about that, because why were they quoting the Shulchan Aruch? Uh, My grandparents uh, were uh, observant of halacha, but they didn't have a strong Jewish education. My grandmother went to Hebrew school in New York and uh, as a girl, and uh, my grandfather went to Cheder in Poland, but in both cases... Their Jewish education ended uh, relatively uh, early, so they didn't. They didn't have a shulchan aruch. What they did have, I knew what what farm they had. What they did have was a kitzer shulchan aruch, the abridged version of the shulchan aruch, which was written in uh, in the late eighteen hundreds, mid to late eighteen hundreds, which is very popular even to this day. The problem with the kitzer shulchan aruch, as any yeshiva student will tell you, is that it's so good at summarizing all practical halacha into one book. It's so good at it because it simplifies everything. And uh, Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, who, uh, who wrote the, uh, the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, he was a Hungarian rabbi. Yes, he did a very good job of summarizing, but you can't tell because it's so condensed. You can't tell if a given halacha is, is it from the Torah? Is it from the rabbis? Is it an Ashkenazi thing? Is it a Hungarian thing? Is it his own personal opinion? It's all presented as the same, which is why yeshiva students tend not to learn Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. Uh, I once saw a, uh, a book uh, that collected Torah articles by many Torah scholars of the past, and in the table of contents it said, here's a Torah article by Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, Gansfried author of Sefer Apirion on the Torah. It's true, Aprion is the name of a commentary in the Torah by Rabbi Gansfried, but I thought it was like weird. How can you identify him as that and not identify him as the author of the best-selling book over hundreds of years, the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch? So presumably it's because yeshiva students, are they don't like the idea of oversimplifying halacha. And it's a good thing. If you can look, look at the details of, of halacha, if you can see there's more than one opinion, then it's not appropriate to oversimplify. Not to mention the fact that if there are two opinions on a given subject, strict and lenient, and you have to summarize them in one opinion, which one are you going to present? You're going to present the strict one, even if you're not from Hungary. Certainly if you're from Hungary, but even if you're not, because if you if you can only present one, well, then some of the time you have to be strict. Okay, ask your rabbi for future uh, uh, details. But that's why, that's the danger of learning halacha from the Kitzvah Shulach. It might be a good first book of halacha to, uh, to study, but then after that, you have to move on, whether you move on to the Mishnah Bura, which is more standard these days, or, uh, or any other halacha book. The Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch is really uh, not a major source 
because it's um, it doesn't it, it's too it's too oversimplified. In this particular case, the halacha, the question of can you use a menorah if the candles are at different heights, does not appear in the Gemara. Does not appear in the Rishonim. Does not appear in the early Achronim. It's not in the Shulchan Aruch at all. The first mention of it, to the best of my knowledge, is in source number two, namely the Chaye Adam. Uh, which was published in, uh, uh, what was it, uh, 1810, 1800, something like that. Um, point is, that's like hundreds of years after the Shekharach. The way it's formulated in the Ramah, a different halacha, here in source number one, is you should make sure that the candles, or oil, whatever, on Hanukkah, are set up They're set up in a line uh, stri- uh, equally, not in a circle. They need to be in a line. Because if they're in a circle, then it's like a uh, medura, uh, literally a bonfire, but uh, like a, a torch. The point is, people need to be able, if you want to do mahajan, in a mahajan, people need to be able to see how many candles you have lit. If you light too many candles right next to each other, especially if they're in a circle, it's not so easy for uh, someone uh, looking at the menorah to tell how many there are. So don't do that. The Ramah himself says, you're allowed to use a lamp, shikarin lampa, um, why? Even though it's in a circle, but uh, each candle is separate from the other, meaning the Ramah is clarifying. He's not saying you can't use uh, a, uh, a cert- you can't put the candles in, in a circle. You can't put them in a circle if they're too close to each other. Or to put it in, in the ancient terms, if you had an oil lamp and you dropped a bunch of wicks in it, then people might not be able to tell how many um how many uh, uh, wicks there are, how many uh, nerot there are. But as long as they're separated, it's, they're totally allowed to be, uh, to be in a circle. That's the Ramah. He does not address it there at different heights. The one who does address it is the Chay Adam, and after him, the Ketzeh Shekhanach. The, the Chay Adam says, he agrees with the Ramah that you're allowed to use a, uh, a lamp, the, the, the kind where the, uh, the wicks are all in a circle, but he thinks it's not Hidur Mitzvah, he thinks it's not the, uh, the, uh, the most beautiful type of mitzvah. Well, he has a right to his opinion, but it's not based on earlier sources. He's working within the Ramah that it's allowed. The Ramah says it's fine, and the Chayadam says, basically, I don't think it's beautiful. Okay, but that's, that, that's a matter of aesthetics, just like on uh, uh, the time when uh, beauty is, is most associated with the mitzvah, namely Banya Etrog. So uh, what's beautiful... Well, look, a beautiful etrog to me is not necessarily a beautiful etrog to you. So this is a very subjective thing, and therefore you won't find it formulated that way uh, in, uh, in, other, in other sources. So he's saying his, Rabbi Danzig, the Chayadam is saying his, his, his personal opinion. And then he says, and similarly, meaning the same way that I don't, that I don't think you should have the uh, uh, oil uh, wicks in a circle, even though it's allowed, as long as they're uh, discrete, separate from each other, I think it's preferable not to. I also think that if you're lighting with candles, you should have them all on the same level, not just uh, straight, but on the same level. You should not have one higher or one lower. The Chaya Adam does say the statement that we started with. Um, of course, by the way, he doesn't say you're not allowed to. He says he thinks it's not Hidur. So if you ever hear anybody saying the statement at the beginning, it's not that it isn't true. It's true according to the Chaya Adam. But not everybody says this. Here's an example. We'll briefly look at two rabbis who disagree. 
Here's the uh, source number three is the uh, Avne Chayfetz. Avne Chayfetz was Rav Aaron Levine, uh, the Rav of uh, a town in Poland, which was spelled R-Z-E-S-Z-O-W, and in Yiddish it was just pronounced Reisha, which is kind of funny because all those consonants. Anyway, he was, uh, Rabbi Levine, you see, died in, in 1941. He was murdered in the Holocaust uh, on um, on the 6th of, uh, of Tammuz, uh, 1941. So last week was his uh, 80th yard site. Um, oh, I forgot to mention that uh, the Shagas Arya's yard site is today, the 15th of Tammuz. Uh, today is his 236th yard site. Anyway, so Rabbi Levine wrote in his book of, uh, of Sheol Shuvot, Rabbinic Responsa, somebody asked him about this question. Rabbi, can you have candles uh, at different heights? And he says, there's no problem. And he says, yes, the Ramah says the, the wicks or candles need to be evenly spaced, but that's talking about that you shouldn't have them in a circle or in such a way that you can't tell how many, how many, uh, uh, how many narrow you have. But if they're in a line, who cares if one is higher or lower than, than the other? Look at this, the bold uh, at the end of the, the paragraph. Rabbi Levine writes, Lomatzinan We don't find anywhere in rabbinic literature that there would be a problem with it. Meaning, at most, the Chaya Adam says, I don't like it. I think it doesn't look muhudar. Uh, well, um, you, I can imagine uh, candles all over the room and it doesn't look muhudar. Maybe it doesn't look like it's it's connected with, with uh, Hanukkah, but you could have, like like my grandparents said, you could have a very beautiful menorah with the candles at, at, at different lengths, at d- different heights. And then he says, in fact, I'll bring a proof, not a proof, but a support from a rabbi from the 1400s, Mari Bruna, who writes something we don't follow. But it's interesting. He says, if you're using candles, it's preferable to have the candles at different heights. Preferable, so that you could do ma'alin bakodesh v'lomoridin. Get it? You start by uh, by lighting from the lower level, and then you you increase the height as you you go up in kedusha and like that. Okay, so we don't actually follow that. But uh, Rabbi Levine says, you see that not only is it not a problem according to Mari Bruna, but in fact it might even be preferable to light the candles uh, going up in uh, in height. Um, I did not know about this Avne Chefetz until just recently, but I did know uh, Rabbi Shimon Eider's book. Rabbi Eider, who passed away in uh, 2007, was a originally a stu- student at Yeshiva University who uh, switched to Lakewood, and he wrote a, a bunch of halacha books, very, very useful halacha books in English with the footnotes in Hebrew. So he has a thin volume called Halachos of Hanukkah, and this is where I, I this was how I knew that there was more than one opinion. Uh, some, he writes in the English, just one sentence, some posts can hold, it's preferable that all candles should be the same height. That's, that is correct. Some hold. And what's the source in the Hebrew footnote? Ketishachnarach and Nechaya Adam. Okay. And then he quotes something briefly from the the, uh, the uh, Ben Ishchai, and then he adds, Shamati mipi hagaon Rav Moshe Feinstein Shuita. I, Rabbi Eider, heard personally from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who did not die until 1986. This was 1980. I personally heard, it's not necessary to have the candles at the same height. Because after all, we see, that when you are lighting a, a, a candle menorah for Shabbat, Shabbat of Hanukkah, right, which happens once a year, 
what's the standard thing to do? Uh, if you're lighting early enough, and then you, you need at least one of the candles to last until half an hour after sunset. Mishtamshin uh, miha, you use at least benir echad yotir aroch. Very common is that one of the candles that you're using for the menorah, not the shamash, you use a Shabbos candle. You use a big candle so that it will last until uh, the proper time, a half an hour after sunset. That's the custom. So you see that the custom contradicts this opinion that says you're not allowed to use candles at, at different heights. I thought that was a good point. Anyway, and that's all condensed into this little footnote in, in Rabbi Eider. I found very few people addressing this, uh, this halacha. I think in general, people, this is the sort of thing that, because there aren't halacha books that say explicitly, you may have candles at different heights. So people, they hear an opinion that says they can't be at different heights, so they just assume that's the only opinion. It is not the only opinion. Okay, that's all I have to say uh, about that. Um, and moving right along to... Another point about uh, Hanukkah, and there's going to be two, the next two uh, sections, the folk etymology and the uh, um, don't know much about history are going to be connected. Folk etymology. Hey, how come there are letters on a dreidel that, unless you're in Israel, it says Nun Gimel Hei Shin. That stands for Nes Gadol Hayasham. A great miracle happened there. Oh, yeah, and it also, the Nun Gimel are also the short for the instructions when you play the game of dreidel. But, like, that's, why do you play dreidel on Hanukkah? Because, Nizka Hayasham. Sadly, this is not true. Meaning, Nizka Hayasham is a nice remez. It's a nice way to associate dreidel with Hanukkah. But, I'll just mention, before we look at the, uh, the source, we know what the association of dreidel is with Hanukkah. And that is... Um, not, which we'll see on the next page, the Maccabees played dreidel to cover up for learning Torah. We'll get to that momentarily. Uh, there, there's a lot written about this, even though I did not put on the source sheet. Hanukkah, in many times and places, became the main time for Jews to gamble. Because it's not a time of Yom Tov, so you can use uh, money. And you're stuck anyway doing nothing during the time that the candles are lit. You're supposed to stay there if possible when the candles are lit. You're not supposed to do any work. So it, for hundreds of years, I know it's not so much a thing anymore. That's because we live in a time in which our entertainment options are many and all through the day. But back in the days in the uh, Middle Ages and for a few hundred years after that, Jews had very few people, had very few entertainment uh, uh, possibilities. So it became a thing uh, which rabbis never liked. There are so many vote about rabbis complaining about people gambling during the time the Hanukkah candles were lit. A lot of people played cards, um, whether poker or other like gambling, gambling games. And then kids, who generally are kept out of grown-ups' serious gambling games, kids played a simplistic gambling game, namely the dreidel. As we'll see shortly, that's the connection of dreidel with Hanukkah. That's why dreidel is associated with Hanukkah. But then, what does Nun Gimel Haitian stand for? Ah! Now we're going to talk about it. Even the, uh, so, so Rabbi, Rabbi David Galinkin, I mentioned him uh, in one of the uh, earlier sessions. He's the, uh, the head of Machon Shechter, uh, 
the uh, uh, graduate school associated with the conservative movement in Israel. And he is a very thorough scholar. Um, I don't follow his psaac, I don't follow his uh, halachic uh, bottom lines, but he's a very, very thorough researcher. Um, this is part of a longer article that, that he wrote. All the elaborate explanations that people have given for Nun Gimel Heishin, they were invented after the fact. The dreidel game originally had nothing to do with Hanukkah. It has been played by various people in various languages for many centuries. Okay? I don't know if anybody saw the, uh, the picture um, that I, uh, I uploaded on, on Facebook with the, uh, with the announcement for this class. It has a picture of what looks like a dreidel, but there's the letter P on one of the sides. So, okay, in England and Ireland, there is or was a game called Totem or Teetotem, especially popular at Christmas. Because, you know, what else do you, do you have to do when you're, like, waiting for, I don't know, the roast goose or whatever it is? Uh, you're, so in, in English, the game is first met, called Totem in the 1500s. The name comes from the Latin totem, which means all, like total. By 1720, it was called teetotum, as in T, the, first, the, uh, the main letter is T. By 1801, the four letters on the top already represented four words in English. T for take all, H for half, P for put down, and N for nothing. And we have pictures of these, these tops. That was in, uh, in English. How about in German? In German, the four letters were N, G, H, and S for uh, nichts, for nothing, Gantz is all, Halb is half, and S is Stell ein. If this sounds familiar, that's because, in this case, as in many other cases, Yiddish is based on German. So in, in German, they called it a trundle or whatever else. In, in uh, Yiddish, they called it either uh, a dreidel or a fargle or a varfel. Um, but Rabbi Glinken concludes the dreidel game represents an irony of Jewish history because Hanukkah celebrates our victory over cultural assimilation, forced assimilation into the uh, culture of the Greeks. So it, we play, it's kind of ironic to play a dreidel game, which is an excellent example of cultural uh, assimilation. Okay, that doesn't mean it's a problem. It just means it's ironic. That's okay. Don't tell your little kids. Uh, wait until your kids are old enough to uh, appreciate irony. But this is not like Rabbi Golinkin's opinion. This is, everything that we just said is well known among scholars of games and toys. So, for example, Michael Quinian, we've mentioned him before. He's the one who uh, has or used to have a blog called Worldwide Words. Um, we get, did a quote from him from his book called Bonsai, Buckaroo, and, uh, and Spuds. He works or used to work for the Oxford English Dictionary. So he has an, a piece about not Hanukkah, it's a piece called Teetotem, and he points out that in Latin, it was the letters were T, A, D, and N. T for uh, totem, A for alpha, sorry for my mispronunciation of Latin. Uh, a stand is for taking, uh, depone, put one in, and nihil uh, for nothing. Meaning, it start, the game goes back so far that the original letters were Latin, and then they were switched to English and... German, and if I remember correctly, also Italian and, uh, uh, and French. And then uh, he points out that, at least in English, the, the term teetotem became, because everybody knew about this little kid's toy game, in, in, uh, in England anyway, it became associated with the act of spinning around. You might, and he gives a couple of quotes, for example, Through the Looking Glass, the other Alice book besides Alice in Wonderland, 
Are, are you a child or a teetotum? You'll make me giddy if you go on turning around like that. Okay, so if you get, uh, I only found this out when I, I'm sure I read the Alice books when I was a kid, but as an adult, when I read the annotated Alice by Martin Gardner, like the uh, puzzle expert of the last century. So he has the, he has uh, very impressive notes. Keep in mind that Lewis Carroll was a mathematician and he threw in all sorts of references to math and philosophy throughout the, uh, the Alice books. So if you're going to read the Alice books as, as an adult, I recommend the annotated Alice. And he has a reference on this, on this sentence, teetotum. And he says something like, it was a four-sided top that kids used as a little gambling game. I'm like, what? You mean they took it from the Jews? No, the Jews took it from them. And that's okay. And that's okay. So some people find this very traumatic because they were told that the Maccabees played dreidel thousands of years ago to cover up for learning Torah. You've heard this, right? Um, so the same way that um, there's this uh, legend, urban legend, that, well, why is playing with a bow and arrow associated with Lagba Omer? Because Roshim Bar Yochai uh, lived at a time when the Romans didn't want uh, Jews to learn Torah, so it must be that they played with bows and arrows to... Uh, to cover up for learning Torah. That would be for Lagba Omer. And then on uh, Hanukkah, it must be that the Maccabees played dreidel to cover up for their learning Torah because we have a tradition that the Syrian Greeks made a decree against learning Torah. Well, guess what? Neither of these, either the bow and arrow or the, the dreidel, neither of these have any shred of historical accuracy whatsoever. Zero. Uh, the, the decrees against learning Torah, that there's a tradition for. But the, like, playing games to, to trick our oppressors into thinking, no, that's just wishful thinking. Um, it has nothing to do with uh, bows and arrows, whatever that's associated with on, on Lag Bomer. And it's nothing to do bows with and arrows wasn't associated with war training? So, so that's one of the uh, suggestions that, uh, I mean, the bow and arrow thing is a relatively recent custom. It's only mentioned in the last couple hundred years. But um, some, and it's not clear why that should have anything to do with, with Lagba Omer. So somebody suggested, uh, yes, uh, that's one of the theories that had, because Rabbi Akiva and his students during, uh, during the Omer, so maybe uh, since there's one opinion that says that Rabbi Akiva's students died in fighting in the, the war, you know, on the side of Bar Kokhva, Rabbi Akiva supported Bar Kokhva. So there is an opinion. It's not in the Gemara, but it's in the Gaonim after the time of the Gemara, that maybe Rabbi Kiva's students died in the war with the Romans. So it makes sense that several hundred years later, when somebody uh, wants to have some custom associated with the Wagba Omer, maybe, maybe something to, uh, to remember the war against the Romans. Fair enough. That also doesn't have any historical basis. Like I said, the whole custom of the, of the bow and arrow uh, doesn't go back. But you should know, when I researched the bow and arrow thing this week, I wanted to present after the source that we're about to look at um, about uh, about the dreidel. I wanted to find a, a late, which we'll see as a late source. I wanted to find a late source for the bow and arrow on Lagba Omer. And you know what I found? Zero. I found several articles that mention a custom of playing with the bow and arrow on uh, Lagba Omer, and a couple of these present the theory about that it was cup, uh, to cover up for learning Torah. But of those articles, not a single one had any source at all. Meaning, it's so late that you won't find it in any books. If anybody does, does find it in a book, please let me know as soon as possible. But 
we know when the dreidel myth started, meaning Jews were playing, Jewish kids were playing dreidel for uh, a couple hundred years um, on Hanukkah because it's the time for gambling, but that is associated with the Maccabees. We know when this started, 1890. That's how recent this medrash is, okay? Everybody tells it, so they don't have it, it, because people don't know the true origin of the dreidel and the association of gambling with Hanukkah. Therefore, when with uh, somebody made up this thing, oh, it must be uh, to cover up for the learning Torah, uh, made up in 1890, possibly a couple years earlier, because the this, this book, Otsar Komen Hage Yeshurun, quotes two other books that we nobody has heard of. It says that uh, he heard it from them. But we have, like, nobody's found it uh, earlier than that. So you want to say it goes back to the 1880s? Fine. We're talking about, like, two seconds ago in Jewish history. More uh, likely is, as Dan Rabinowitz points out uh, in, uh, in his blog, the, the Sfarm blog, he's written a lot of stuff uh, about um, books and, and Jewish history and Jewish customs, etc. By the way, he also mentions that Bruegel, the, uh, the famous Dutch painter, he has a, a, a well-known painting of... Uh, 1500s of lots and lots of children's games, okay? Um, one of those games is uh, in, in the picture is, uh, is a teetotum. But the earliest me- Jewish mention of dreidel is only in the late 18th century, only in the late 1700s, when the Jew- Jewish kids presumably copied it from their, their non-Jewish neighbors. And the story connecting dreidel to the Maccabees was first published in 1890. And then he says, P.S., that same author offers a similar explanation for playing cards on Hanukkah. It must be that the Maccabees played cards on Hanukkah. But for some reason, people don't like repeating that one. Um, but it's, it, it makes sense, meaning that the same author looked around and saw grown-ups playing cards, gambling with cards on Hanukkah, and children gambling with a top on Hanukkah. So in order to give it further meaning, he made up this thing about the, uh, the Maccabees. And that... You know what? That's just not okay because it sounds uh, it sounds accurate. It seems to fit with what we know about decrees against learning Torah, but it, it's not it's not fair. You want to say you want to give meaning to to a minhag? Fine, but then don't present it as like that's why. Like like for example, you've probably heard this: the Bnei Saschar, uh, the Dinaver uh, Rebbe, a Hasidic Rebbe. On the 1800s, has uh, a nice explanation about why we hold the dreidel from the top, but we hold the grogger from the bottom because on Hanukkah uh, God saved us from above. The miracle was done from above, but on on Purim we saved ourselves. Uh, Esther, Mordechai, etc. So it's appropriate. You know what? That's fine. It's a nice remez, and you're not pretending that that's why the custom started. If you tell a story about the Maccabees, then you're just making it up. So I, I, and you're presenting a history of something that is not history or medish at all. So I recommend not repeating that one. We are running out of time, and we still have two more to go. Misunderstood text. Okay, here we have our, our Rabbi Zivotofsky piece. The, the people claim that the third Beit HaMikdash, according to Jewish, Jewish tradition, the temple will, will be rebuilt. Uh, by or associated with uh, Mashiach, the Messiah, third Beit HaMikdash will not have animal karbonot, as, as the first two temples did, according to the Rambam and according to Rav Kook. So Rabbi Zivotofsky points out that we know from explicit writings of the Rambam and of Rav Kook that they both believed that there will be animal sacrifices in the third Beit HaMikdash. We're just going to skim through this. Why would anybody think that 
So I'm just going to summarize. Why would any, I'll, and I'll say some stuff that's not in the article. Why would anybody think that the Rambam uh, was of the opinion that there won't be animal sacrifices in the future? Because the Rambam writes in the Morn of Uchim, a reason why God commanded sacrifices in the, the Mishkan, the Tabernacle, and in the Beit HaMikdash, the, the Temple, because the people can't just instantaneously abandon their religious practices, and people were used to, everybody in the ancient Near East was used to sacrificing animals, so God, and so if, if God had just said, from now on, no sacrifices at all, only praying, only this theoretical thing without physical actions, the people would not have been able to handle it, so that's why God uh, we said, bring, instead of bringing sacrifices to the idols, bring sacrifices to me. That's more or less what the Rambam writes in Mornavuchim. So the way that people present uh, reasons for mitzvot, Tama mitzvot, these days, that's very problematic because that would only explain why God told the Jews in the desert or maybe in the ancient Near East to have sacrifices, but that would have nothing to do with us in the future, meaning the real, there's a, a major flaw for, for, from our perspective uh, with all the reasons that the Rambam gives in Mornavuchim for mitzvot, namely they're all associated with the ancient Near East. So they're not meaningful for us. Like, why should I continue keeping a mitzvah whose reason was, has not been relevant for thousands of years? That is a good question. The Rambam apparently was not bothered by this question because he thinks that, A, reasons are made a lot of sense in the ancient Near East, and he also thinks that mitzvot are eternal. For us, that's a contradiction. Meaning, like, Lahavdil, you know, when the reform movement uh, uh, where just people were wanting to not keep halacha anymore in the 1800s that when they wanted to say, oh, we don't have to uh, uh, stay away from eating pork, they made up a thing, oh, it must be that pork was originally forbidden because of, of disease and pigs had trichinosis. But nowadays, we live in modern times and, and pigs uh, are, are very clean, so the reason doesn't apply, therefore the mitzvah doesn't apply. That's, that's very dangerous. It's also not historically accurate. There's no indication in Torah sources that that's why... Um, that, that that's a source for the prohibition of, of uh, against eating pork, but that's not the point. The point is that for moderns, anyway, if the reason, if you give a reason for a mitzvah that doesn't apply anymore, our logical conclusion is that the mitzvah doesn't apply anymore. That's why we don't give reasons like that. And yet the Rambam did. So it's a good question on the Rambam, but as Rabbi Zivotofsky points out, in multiple places, in other writings of the Rambam, he makes it very clear that there will be animal sacrifices in the temple. Basically, you could phrase it as one of many contradictions between the Mishnah Torah and the Mornavuchim. Okay, there are a lot of contradictions, but that's the, the, the way to resolve the contradictions is not to say, I guess the Rambam doesn't think there will be Karbono in the future. Hello, two of the 14 books of the Mishnah Torah, Avoda and Karbono, are devoted entirely to sacrifices. And the Rambam doesn't put anything in the Mishnah Burah that he thinks, uh, sorry, in the Mishnah Torah. The Rambam doesn't put anything in the Mishnah Torah that he thinks was only a mitzvah of the past. The Rambam very clearly, and he, he defends Karbono uh, in the Mishnah Torah. So the fact that he says something in, in the Mornavuchim that is a good question for us, it's a good question. The question is there. But that doesn't mean that he thinks that there won't be carbon in the future. That's just us, modern people, pre projecting uh, on, on the past. Um, uh, having said that, there are a few ways to try to reconcile the different uh, the Rambam with himself or the Rambam with the Ramban. I, I quoted a little bit of it here, but there's more in Rabbi Zivotofsky's article. Let's go on to uh, Rav Cook. 
why did people think that the Rav Cook believes that there won't be carbonate in the future? Well, part of it is there's this booklet uh, based on the writings of Rav Cook called Chazona Tzimchanut Vashalom, the vision of vegetarianism and peace, in which the Rambam, uh, sorry, in which the Rav Cook basically talks about uh, humans were on a higher level in the Garden of Eden, during which time eating animals was not allowed. And at some point in the future, Rav Cook writes, we will once again be on that high level where we won't be able to uh, eat animals. So if we're not eating animals, so we, we, uh, we're certainly not bringing them as carbonate. So people associate Rav Cook with vegetarianism, but as Rabbi J. David Bleich writes at great length in Contemporary Halachic Problems, uh, volume uh, three, I think, three or four, uh, Rav Cook wasn't a vegetarian. And Rav Cook told people not to be vegetarians. Rav Cook thought that there will be a time in the future when vegetarianism will be appropriate, but he didn't think it's appropriate now. And furthermore, furthermore, Rav Cook says, writes that there will be animal sacrifices in the Third Temple. There's a longer piece that Chazon Tzimchanud HaShalom was condensed from. Meaning, Chazon Tzimchanud HaShalom was written by Rav Cook, but it's an abridged version of several long essays that, that he wrote. He wrote, among other things, in that longer version, um, everything will return to its place when the redemption comes, meaning there will be um, sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the temple. But he was writing this to Rav Chaim Hershenson, rabbi in New Jersey, who he, Rav Cook, corresponded a lot with him, and he thought that there won't be animal sacrifices in the future. Rav Cook does say there will be a time in the far future based on some midrashim, when the nature of the world will change, animals will be sentient, animals will be on a human level, animals will be like people. Okay, at whatever point the world changes, then we're not killing animals, whether as sacrifices or, or to eat them. But Rav Cook basically made a distinction between the time of Mashiach, which is hopefully the uh, near future, as opposed to the time of Chir HaMeitim, resurrection of the dead, or whatever other far-off, world-changing prophecies of the future. So included in that is that the world will change and animals will be like people and we won't be allowed to to eat them. But uh, that's very different from saying uh, that in the third temple there won't be sacrifices. So this is an example of misunderstood texts, meaning that because uh, I skipped the, there's another text that Cook wrote that could be misinterpreted to uh, to, to mean that there won't be animal sacrifices in, in, the, beta, in the third Beit HaMikdash. He is talking about the third Beit HaMikdash in the far future. Point is, it's misunderstood text in that if you see one text of the Rambam or one text of Rav Kook, you could get that idea that there won't be animal sacrifices in the third Beit HaMikdash. But when you see more texts by those authors, then, then you'll realize that that, that, is, uh, that, is, not, that is not the case uh, at all. And now we have Ending with Stranger Than Fiction. Hebrew University makes millions of dollars a year because Albert Einstein was ahead of his time. As is pointed out in the Wikipedia article on uh, Einstein, he was a figurehead leader in helping establish the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. By the way, Hebrew U was founded um, in, uh, officially in July of uh, 1918, so uh, next month will be 103 years since the founding of Hebrew U. He was among the first board of governors, and when he died, okay, Einstein's will states that his manuscripts and publication rights and literary property and rights will first go to his secretary and stepdaughter, 
as long as they're alive, but then after they die, it will all go to Hebrew University. That's in the will of Einstein. And therefore, what? As pointed out in an article in Haaretz in 2004, is talking about just the, le- the eight years before that. Hebrew University of Jerusalem has netted some $10 million over the last eight years from royalties charged for the commercial use of Albert Einstein's name and image, what, we, what, they, what the lawyers call the right of publicity. In other words, even though he died a while ago, he died in 1955, but he realized the commercial potential of his name and image. Who is thinking in terms of name of an image, a brand, in the 1950s, or before that, whenever he made his will? Uh, oops, I went back a page. Um, he, Hebrew U only, only formalized its rights and started earning revenues from it, basically, uh, around the year 2000 or so. But they now own this incredibly valuable intellectual property, namely the image of Einstein. So, for example, when Steven Spielberg wanted to use Einstein's image for a few seconds in his movie AI, Steven Spielberg paid Hebrew $600,000. Pepsi paid to use Einstein's image in a commercial. They said they're not uh, Hebrew you turned down a liquor company that wants to make an Einstein vodka. Hebrew you signed a 10-year royalty agreement with Disney for a children's toys under the name Baby Einstein. Who makes all the money from Baby Einstein? That's right, Hebrew University. So uh, just, uh, just to, to bring out the point, let me just share with you uh, one second. Share my screen. From here it is. There's a Wikipedia page called Forbes's list of the world's highest paid dead celebrities. Yes, every year somebody goes through the uh, dead celebrities and sees how much their estates uh, make in the last year. So the 2020 list, you can see that Michael Jackson is number one, his estate. Uh, earned $48 million in, uh, in 2020. Then there's Dr. Seuss, Charles Schultz, the golfer Arnold Palmer, El- Elvis. Of course, Elvis is, uh, is up there. A few who will probably not be on the list in a couple years from now. Unfortunately, Einstein is not on the list anymore. But because they only have the top 18, sorry, the top 13, and number 13 last year was Marilyn Monroe. Her estate made $8 million, which means that anybody below that was making less than that uh, in 2020. But between 2006 and 2017, Einstein was on this list. So, very, very briefly, 2017, the estate of Albert Einstein made $10 million that year. Wow. Considering that all these people are, you know, dead celebrities and they're all entertainers of some sort. Einstein, not an entertainer. And yet, you know, and considering how many, you know, uh, scientists are, uh, are famous uh, outside of the realms of, uh, of science people, okay, Einstein's image is worth a lot. And the fact that he donated not just money but he donated to Hebrew U his manuscripts, his handwritten papers, his Nobel Prize, his private letters, and his intellectual property. That 
That is a very impressive thing. Strange but true, Hebrew U makes a lot of money just from licensing the image of Albert Einstein. Our time is up. Uh, I'm going, I appreciate everybody's uh, presence here. Thanks for, uh, for joining me. I will um, uh, go through, I'm going to end the recording now and then go through uh, the chat. Uh, we have uh, three more sessions uh, after this one, uh, and I hope that you'll uh, join me in uh, the next three weeks as well.